Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. This is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I'm here to welcome you once again uh, to Clyburn Chronicles. Today uh, is a very, very special day for me, and it'll be a special treat uh, for each and every one of you. Our guest today is Andrew Young. Andrew Young, if you were to look him up, they would say that he's an American politician a diplomat and an activist. And he began his career uh, as a pastor and was an early leader uh, in the civil rights movement, uh, serving as both executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And of course, he was a very, very close confidant of Martin Luther King Jr. And they later represented Georgia in the United States Congress and served as United States Ambassador to the United Nations in the Carter administration and was the 55th mayor of Atlanta. And for me, uh, this is special because way back in my earlier life when I was somewhat uh, of an activist or maybe an ex-activist living in Charleston, South Carolina, where I went uh, to teach school uh, back in January 1962. And I was there in Charleston uh, when Andy Young visited that area several times. And in addition to being a confidant of Martin Luther King Jr., he was an acquaintance of one of my heroines, Septima Ponset Clark. I spent a lot of time with Septima uh, Clark and uh, her uh, close uh, sidekick, I would always call Bernice Robinson. And so Andy and I go way, way back. I'll never forget uh, Andy coming uh, to Charleston uh, to help negotiate uh, events surrounding um, uh, events there. Uh, and for some strange reason, uh, people always wanted to hire uh, Andy away from the movement. He had that kind of an impact on his adversary. Just imagine sitting across the table from someone, you're trying to integrate their business and they're trying to resist. And in the midst of all of that, they come away with such a positive attitude 
they would love to have you come and be a part of their business efforts. Andy and I became friends during that time. And when I ran for Congress uh, back in the 1992, he was one that supported my efforts, gave credibility to the effort. And of course, uh, I was in a five-way contest and was able to win that five-way contest with 56% of the vote by my lonesome, due in large measure upon Andrew Young well, giving I, me his I, blessings. I now, cannot take there. credit for that. That was Bishop John Adams. <laughs> 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 bishop John Adams of the AME was the AME bishop that time, and when he said you should be the congressman, that 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 put put the seal on it. <laughs> I appreciate that, but thank you so much for being here with us today, Andy. Uh, and we are meeting uh, at a time that the whole world is mourning John Robert Lewis. You knew John Lewis very, very well, worked much more closely with him than even I did. Uh, though we served here in the Congress together uh, for 27 years and met back in 1960 when we were organizing the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You and John became very close friends. And uh, I would like for you to just share with our listeners today uh, your feelings about Please. John Lewis. Well, you know, I was, I had moved from uh, Georgia, pastorate in Georgia, uh, to the National Council of Churches in 1957. And um, in 1961, we saw, we, were, we just bought a house in Queens, and um, I had a good job, and my family was relieved that I was out of South Georgia, uh, and John and C.T. Vivian and Jim Lawson and Kelly Miller-Smith and Diane Nash and James Bevel all came on television with the Nashville sit-in story. And I think it was the impact that John Lewis made in a, just a strong, humble, straightforward way that when the intermission came, my wife said to me, time for us to go home. I said, we just bought this house. She said, yeah, but this is not home. New York can never be my home. It's time for us to head back to Georgia and Alabama. And I quit my job, sold my house, and came back and ended up in an office uh, across the hall from Martin Luther King and got involved with Stephanie Clark, Bernice Robinson, and Dorothy Cotton in running the Citizenship Education Program. We needed to do that through the United Church of Christ because SCLC didn't have a tax exempt arm. So I got the church to take the money that was offered to train people to read and write and teach their citizens to vote. That was something that Septima developed right there in your territory uh, on the ferry between Johns Island and Charleston. Every morning, she would teach the, the longshoremen, uh, make sure they could read and write well enough to register the boat. And so she had her lessons on that hour-long ferry ride every day, going and coming. She taught them voter registration. And that was the origin of that program that ended up covering every county in South Carolina 
and going all the way to East Texas. And I think that that Septima Clark is one of the unsung heroes of the movement. Uh, everybody knows Rosa Parks. Few people know Septima Clark. But where Rosa Parks was first and very important uh, in Montgomery, Septima's range was nationwide. And she is one of those heroes that uh, um, that really helped raise both of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it's kind of interesting, uh, I keep her book and that, uh, that braided hairstyle that she went to late in her life. You know, I look at a lot of the young people uh, today, my own daughter wearing braids. I say to them, uh, I saw that on September clock uh, years and years ago. And she was just a remarkable woman. In fact, the last time uh, I was in the company of Martin Luther King Jr., the July before uh, his death, it was in her home. Uh, we had lunch with Martin Luther King Jr. in September Clark's home there on Ponset Street, I mean on President Street uh, there in Charleston. And so you are right. She was one of those unsung heroes. In fact, uh, she taught Rosa Parks uh, down right. at Highlander. Uh, well, tell us, share a little bit about uh, September Clark. She's one of my favorite people, and I would love for people to know more about her. Well, she was a school teacher who got fired from the school system just because she said she was a member of the NAACP. They revoked her teacher's license, and uh, Highlander Folk School hired her and got a grant from the Marshall Field Foundation in Chicago. And they paid her salary to let her teach the longshoremen. And she developed that literacy program that started on the ferry between Johns Island and Charleston. And morning and evening, they had voter registration lessons on the way to work and on the way home. And uh, we decided that program was good enough that we needed to spread it southwide. And I think of that everywhere we had a movement, Selma, uh, Albany, Birmingham, uh, New Orleans, everywhere we had a movement. First, Septima and Dorothy Cotton and I had been in those places and we were looking for people the way we define leaders in the South. We said, we're looking for the people with PhD minds. <laughs> Never had a chance to get an education. Right. And so we would always, you could always find in any little country town, uh, somebody who everybody looked up to. I know in my first church down in Thomasville, Georgia, in Beechton, Georgia, there was an old brother about 90 years old, um, about 6'4", and lean and mean, uh, who uh, Uncle Joe Metcalf, but Uncle Joe was a wise man, and I I remember sitting on the porch with him, and he was blind, and he picked up a book that my roommate had gone who had from seminary who had gone to Scotland to study theology, and Uncle Joe picked up the book and said, "What's this book say? What's this you're reading, preacher?" And I said, "It's a book about Christ and time," and he said, "Oh, I know about that." He said, it's God's time and this man's time. 
<laughs> he, said, we, he said, we plant the food, we plant our seeds on man's time, but it don't come up until it's God's time. <laughs> that's great. And I read the book, that's exactly what this German theologian was saying, you know, uh, uh, with all of his big words. But Uncle Joe made it plain. Right. And uh, those were the kind of people we were looking for. And those were the kind of people that Scepter McClark trained. And those were the kind of people that really created the civil rights movement and and now are changing the South and the nation. They not only produce the congressmen like you and me, but they produce the football players, the basketball players. Absolutely. And they're producing now a generation of teachers and lawyers and doctors and, and business executives. So our work is far beyond the political. And I think through people like Septima, it's a work that, that has been ordained by God. And John Lewis exemplified the spirituality of that movement. I mean, I never could, I mean, I, I never expected John to go to, to Raleigh. And with all of you brilliant young men, I mean, there were probably more brilliant young people there at this foundation of SNCC. That's probably the, the, the gathering of the brightest and the best. And yet they picked John as the leader because he was the bravest. Right. But he was also the most sincere and the most humble. So it was one case where all of the, you know, the flashy pretty boys and articulate orators got upstaged by the, the simple humility and spiritual power of a John Lewis. And you saw that that's, that's lasted for 70 years. And he, he, Absolutely. he never wavered in it. He was just as powerful in the Congress. Absolutely. John, Upshaw uh, uh, University, uh, at the spring of 1960, uh, I, I remember uh, that gathering. But it was later that year, in October, October 15th, 16th uh, of that year, on the campus of Mohouse uh, College, uh, when I first met John. Uh, it was also the day I met Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, there at that weekend. And John, uh, I tell everybody, most of us adopted nonviolence. John internalized nonviolence. Uh, it became his life. Uh, it was our tactic. It was his life. Uh, and, and that's what you mean when you said he was just spiritual about it. Uh, and sitting down and talking with John, uh, it was just a, uh, a, the conversation would always be one uh, that left you wondering uh, exactly who you are, why you can't be uh, like John. I just love the guy. And the Saturday before he passed, we talked uh, on the phone. And I said to him, you, you, you listen, John, I'll talk, you listen. Uh, conserve your energy. And I told him how much I loved him uh, and what he meant to me. Uh, and he meant that to so many people. Uh, and so I think it's deserving uh, that we are uh, naming this update of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, that March on Bloody Sunday, March 1965, that 
demonstration on that bridge is what led to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. That's right. Which was signed into law in August of 1965. And John gave, as he would always say, a little blood yeah. for us to get that, that act. And now the Supreme Court has gutted it. Uh, seven years ago, they just said we need to update the formula. So now we've updated the formula. John Lewis, Jim Sensenbrenner, a Republican from Wisconsin, Work together to update it, and we've got it updated. Uh, we've done exactly what the Supreme Court said you should do, and we've passed it in the House. It's time for the Senate to pass that uh, that law. Uh, now it's got John Lewis's name on it, and everybody's talking about how much they love John Lewis. Great words, but it's their deeds. And I can think of no better deed uh, than uh, passing uh, the John R. Lewis. Voting Rights Act of 2020. That's the way to remember John. That's what he gave his all for. He would always tell us, the vote is precious, almost sacred. That was John Lewis. Well, you know, I, um, I hope we can either pass, we, we will pass this and get it through the Senate or that we will organize and get enough votes out in a hundred days uh, to get us a new Senate. Right. And it took us time. And that's what I, I, I hope these young people can realize that I worry about the demonstrations continuing. You got to know when you've won. And basically what you do with nonviolence is you raise the moral issue. Uh, but then you have to stop and institutionalize it. You have to go from the symbolic marches to the substance of voting and of getting legislation passed. And the last meeting I had with Martin Luther King before he went to Memphis uh, was with John Conyers, uh, your colleague in the Congress from Michigan, and J uh, Dick Hatcher from Gary, and Harry Belafonte and myself. And the whole conversation was, how do we take the energy from the streets and put it in and, and lead it to the ballot box and lead it to a change in the Congress and the legislate, legislative bodies of the House of Representatives of, of the, the states uh, and the presidency. And we were able to do that, but it took us it took us a long time and too long because people got disillusioned after Dr. King's death. And we lost that race in 1968 by less than one vote for precinct. And if we could have kept on going uh, with Hubert Humphrey, who was somebody committed to the things that we were talking about and marching about, uh, instead we got distracted by Nixon and uh, though he did some good things uh, but he got distracted by his own ego and his own sickness and disturbed our nation significantly and slowed us down for a while then we yes. come back absolutely uh, and I feel that uh, we're on the way back now and I think that uh, John and I 
uh, when we talked about this on the floor of the house uh, several uh, uh, months, months ago, back maybe January or February, uh, and he talked uh, about the same fears that you just uh, spoke of. Uh, you know, we were doing great things back in the 1960s, as you said, uh, but we woke up one morning and all of a sudden a new headline was out there. Burn, baby, burn. Yeah. That became the headline. And that destroyed the movement. It destroyed the movement. And that's what we were talking about, John and I, uh, and that's why the two of us, we collaborated on speaking out against defund the police, another headline that could destroy a movement. So what we, what we have what to we do, as you said, add substance yeah. to this. So my, 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 um, my solution when I became mayor of Atlanta, um, and some of the Atlanta police had actually put me in jail, but I told when I was on the garbage worker strike, uh, but I said, you guys are underpaid too. And so we worked to get our police force half and half black and white, and a third of it was female. And that made a significant difference because women use their heads and not their brawn. It's brains and not brawn. And law enforcement requires more brains than brawn. And so the desegregation or the integration of our police uh, with black and white, gay and straight, male and female, uh, is a better use of the money. Uh, and you get better law enforcement, you get more community policing. And that's basically the way I think the Congress is going. I think it's the way the Democratic Party wants to go. But now we got people out there in the streets who are what we used to call freedom high. And they, they having fun and they don't have jobs, they can't go back to school, they don't have anything else to do, but they're ruining their own movement. Now, uh, the Chinese did that. You know, the Chinese had, they had China in the palm of their hand, but they didn't know when to quit. And um, the military came in and wiped them out, they killed the Chinese freedom movement. Now in Poland, Lech Walesa was smarter. When the Russian tanks started coming at them and they were demonstrating, they dispersed and shut it down immediately. And then the tanks went away and a few months later they were stirred up again. <laughs> but they achieved independence in Poland. Uh, they haven't achieved much in China. And I think that, that these are students, these are young people that have got to learn the lessons of history, not just our history. Uh, where we stopped after Birmingham and we went to Washington and we got the, the work through the NAACP and the Congress uh, to get the Civil Rights Bill written and it took us almost another year to get it passed. But uh, we had, uh, we got the president to say we shall overcome right after John's march across that bridge. And once we had the president and the Senate. The problem back then was the House. Now we got the House, but we got to get the Senate. Absolutely. You, know, uh, you said something very interesting there. One of the things I hear about a lot these days, it tell me how the great society programs fail. 
you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, if the lessons of history are playing for it. You know, if you look at uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which all of these efforts led to, 64 Civil Rights Act. And uh, a lot of people thought that that was enough. But you knew so well, like King knew, uh, that look, uh, we got the Civil Rights Act, you outlaw uh, discrimination in the private sector, in employment, uh, what we call Title Seven, but voting was not in there. No. And, and, and so all of a sudden, after the 64 Civil Rights Act, we got the Vote Rights Act in 1965, but that's not all that we got in 1965. If you go back, you will see those programs, Elementary Secondary Education Act, uh, the Higher Education Act, uh, uh, amending Social Security to give us Medicaid and Medicare, all these things uh, came about. Uh, and then later in 1968, we got the Fair Housing Law. Uh, we didn't even get the uh, outlaw discrimination in the public sector until 1972. It all started in 1964. And over an eight year period, we did great things. But as you say, all of a sudden, uh, we got uh, Richard Nixon, and it brought that movement uh, to a halt. Now there's more energy. Now how are we going to harness that energy and apply it uh, to the political process? That's what, That's I what said. we got to do. I said to the kids here, I said, you know, it took us three months of organization, and only 55 people showed up. <laughs> to go to jail with Martin Luther King and Birmingham. <laughs> right. You all got 55,000 in 15 minutes on your cell phones. Absolutely. You have generated power, and Black Lives Matter has been heard all around the world. I saw Black Lives Matter uh, reported from New Zealand. Uh, they have captured the imagination of the world, but Martin said, look, if we don't get the right to vote if we don't desegregate the society, the Nobel Peace Prize is a shallow symbol of, 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 that doesn't help us one bit. And you've got to take this energy and you've got to take this vitality and you've got to translate it into substantive legislative and economic actions. And, That's exactly right. Yeah. That's what has to take place now. This is, to me, Every election is important. I, I never say that one election, election is more important than the other. I will say this, though. Some elections are more consequential than others. And I believe that this year is the most consequential election, uh, maybe since 1860. Well, uh, I agree with you. I'm sorry? I agree with you. I appreciate that. So what we've got to do, it seems to me, is focus on this election this year. And the this is where uh, the rubber meets the road. Uh, none of this will matter uh, if we do not get a new Senate and a new president uh, to pick up the mantle, uh, like, much like I've seen happen 
in so many instances uh, in state and local governments. You know, I don't want to keep you long today, but I, I want, before concluding, I, I really want to go, go back to September clock uh, to help make your point. Uh, you know, September got fired. If I remember, she was teaching in a little town of Ellery, South Carolina, because she refused to denounce her membership in the NAACP. And that got her fired from her teaching job. Years later, John West gets elected governor of South Carolina in 1970 and brought me onto his staff. My first job, he said to me, was to get Septimus Clark's state pension reinstated. Because when she got fired, she lost her pension. Yeah. And so I worked hard. We never could get the legislature to agree to do that. But they did agree to give her a lump sum. I brought that up because, as you said, but for getting an election, John West got elected governor of South Carolina uh, by 18,000 votes. It was an election he was not supposed to win. It was an election that the right-wingers thought they had in the bag. And you remember, uh, we were trying to get schools integrated in 1970. We had buses overturned over to the Mall, South Carolina to keep schools from being integrated. But people rallied and went to the polls in 1970 in South Carolina and changed. And all of a sudden, we got a governor that brought this uh, black guy onto his staff. And they says, we got to do right by September clock. That's why elections are so consequential. So, so the election like, this I, year. I like, to, I like to remind your uh, colleagues in South Carolina that if they hadn't desegregated those schools, Clemson never would have been number one in anything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And look, uh, to your point, uh, they're so appreciative of that. When those former football players uh, said, John C. Calhoun's name need to come off of this honors college. Pitchfork Ben, Pilman's, uh, ben uh, Tillman's name need to come off of this, this building up here. They responded by taking Calhoun's name off of the honors college and uh, by uh, taking or uh, requesting permission but to now, take Tillman's name off the building. Yeah. But, but when you take the name off the building, you still haven't put a chicken in the pot. <laughs> you still haven't put a dollar in the bank. <laughs> well, that's right. And, that's, and, that's and we got to keep it at food and substance. And the, tech, the, 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 the census is something we don't do enough with. The census will give us, if we get an accurate count, you have to get right in the census in order to get the money you're entitled to. Uh, and so we need the census and we need the big vote, and then we'll be in pretty good shape, I think. I think you're absolutely correct. You know, the Lord is with us, and I'm a preacher ultimately. Uh, and I, on the day that I was elected to Congress, it rained from three o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock at night. And I said, Lord, why did you do this to me? My people ain't gonna come out in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> 
they, they, they worried about their hair and they worried about getting their clothes wet and they don't have any transportation. And I've worked all this hard. When we counted the boats in the pouring down rain, I got a 74% black turnout. And that's what sent me to Congress. And so I know when our people understand the importance of a situation, ain't nobody gonna turn them around, not even the rain and not even the, all of the foolishness and not lies that are going on and that are gonna come out against, uh, I mean, you got counter conspiracy theories now uh, that are trying to get people confused. But we always used to sing, keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. That is absolutely correct. And I don't know of a better way uh, to end this podcast uh, by first of all, thanking you. Uh, thanking you for all that you've contributed uh, to this great country. Uh, I've said over and over again, this is a great country. It does not have to be made great. Our challenge is to make this country's greatness accessible and affordable for all of its people. Perfect. And you have done that. You have left. Uh, well, I've tried, but we, we're not there yet. No, no When you were mentioning the Great Society, you know, I, I tried to like George Bush, but one of the things he did that's almost unforgivable, he took the money for the aid for disadvantaged children and he gave, took it away from them and gave it to a testing firm on Wall Street. And taking the money from the poor and giving it to the rich. And that's what wrecked Atlanta's public schools. Uh, and because the teachers couldn't teach, they had to teach the test. Right. And we've got to realize that every election, the slightest little thing can um, undo years of work and there's always somebody trying to you know keep us back on the farm and we we need to go back on the farm but we need to go with money and with new technology and 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 with a a, a, a way to control our lives and and live the high quality life that every american that is is entitled to and you, uh, um, you always make me proud when I see you in the Congress. And I always remember those days when uh, it was kind of rough down here. But I, I never, you know, I, I never was uh, nervous about it. Uh, one more thing is when you talk about that hospital strike, when I went down to help settle a hospital strike, the person that helped me settle it was Stephen Colbert's daddy. I remember. It turned out that he was the uh, the deputy director, uh, and I went to see the director, and he turned me over to the deputy director, and that's how we got the hospital workers' strike settled in Charleston, South Carolina, in 1969. Absolutely, I remember it very well, uh, and uh, uh, I remember Kronzberg. Uh, uh, trying to hire you away when you were negotiating with him at that, what, I guess it was S.H. Crest, whatever that five and dimes uh, store name was. Remember those things very well. Yeah. And I really, really appreciate you. 
Uh, appreciate that you, man. I missed, I missed uh, the she-crab soup. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll bring you something. Next and, time and I, 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 I come I, to Atlanta. I missed the she-crab soup, and I missed the pants of clapping on the island. Oh, yeah. Well, you can, well, you can, they have a clapping symphony over there on those islands. Well, it's called Common Meetup. You know, okay. you, you remember that. Yeah. Well, let me thank you once again, uh, really, for being here with us. The fact of the matter is, uh, we should close by asking all of our listeners, uh, as you just said, keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. Let's dedicate this election year to John R. Lewis. Let's turn out in record numbers. Let's fill out the census uh, form. Get that information in. That's where the monies uh, are allocated based upon the people uh, who are here in the country and where they are. So don't fail to fill out the census. And my goodness, if you aren't registered, get registered. And once you get registered, you vote. Don't wait on election day. Start voting as soon as opposed open, be it absentee voting, be it early voting, whatever it may be. Let's go to the polls early and spend the rest of the time getting others to the polls. My good friend, Ambassador Andrew Young, Congressman Andrew Young, uh, activist Andrew Young, but most of all, my friend, Andrew Young, thank you so much for being okay, here with us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.